Super Cup wins Rafa Benitez out of Everton after just six months and a bit of COVID postponement controversy with Arsenal. We talk about all this and more, or I should say I talk about all of this and more because it is just me solo podcasting this episode, but it's going to be a great one. Please, please leave us a rating if you enjoy the show, either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps so much. And yeah, enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the final third podcast. It is Monday. It's a Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so happy MLK Jr. Day. Uh, And we are back for another news and predictions episode where we talk about the largest news in soccer, both on and off the field. My name is Asia Tabura. I'm a fan of Minnesota United, West Ham United, which went pretty badly today thanks to a Jack Harrison uh, hat trick. Love the guy. Great player, but kind of sucks for me. And I'm also a fan of the U.S. national team as well. And usually I'm joined by Jack, uh, my co-host, who's a fan of, among other teams, Chelsea, the French national team, Atlanta, Minnesota United. Uh, but he's not here right now. He's actually in Florida, you know, relaxing, taking in the sun, uh, reading some uh, Marvel comics, I believe, on the beach just before the school semester starts again. And I'm I'm really jealous. I'm about to move back to my apartment uh, right after I record this. So and it's cold. It's really cold here in Minnesota. So I'm really jealous. But he kind of deserves that rest. He's put in a lot of work the last semester so i'll will be you know handling this podcast episode solo so it's just gonna be you and me talking about you know the greatest sport of all time dare i say it soccer and even though it's just gonna be me i think it's still gonna be fun we have a lot of new stories to cover and because jack's not here to give his hot takes i'll have to make up for it and because he's also not here to you know kind of make mine a little bit milder kind of bring me down for my hot takes i'll uh be as unhinged as i want not really uh but I- i'm sure he'll be uh very happy to know that uh, i'll be taking care of this episode uh, before we get to anything twitter and instagram always follow us at final third show uh, on both of those Jack and I both like to tweet and post on Instagram things about uh, soccer, live tweeting games, and all of that thing. So definitely go follow us there. Link will be down below. All right, before we get into anything, I, I didn't really plan to talk about AFCON too much because uh, we are, Jack and I, planning to do a AFCON review later on uh, once it concludes. But I just wanted to give a little bit of a update on how the groups are going as of Sunday the 16th when I'm recording this starting off with group a Cameroon I think have definitely been the best team on paper or not on paper best team on the field and I think a lot of that is due to the fact that they are playing at home it the the tournament is being played in Cameroon so they're used to the field conditions the weather Uh, they are the, the, the top scoring team right now in fact they they reached six goals scored before any other team reached two goals scored so if that tells you anything about how uh this tournament is going for every other team a lot of one zeros zero zeros before uh, the last couple days uh, but they have definitely been high performing burkino faso is second place in group a and cape verde my pick for the underdog team is in third place so a uh, very open uh cameroon is on six points burkino faso and cape verde on three points each a lot to play for especially because cape verde and uh 
Cameroon, yes, are playing on the final match. And Burkina Faso and last place Ethiopia are playing. So Cape Verde, Burkina Faso, they're going for that second place spot. And I think, unfortunately for my prediction, Burkina Faso might take that second place spot. In Group B, there's a little bit of a shakeup. You'd expect Senegal, who are among the favorites to win this, to be on top, but uh, they're not. They're in second place. They've only scored one goal. Uh, Edward Mendy has been out due to COVID, but uh, they haven't conceded any goals, so it's I don't think they're you know too bummed about not having him. Uh, but Guinea's actually in first place with Malawi in third place, Zimbabwe last place. Guinea and Senegal tied with four points and if i can see who they're playing senegal and malawi play next and i really think senegal still has a chance to you know reach the echelons of the round of 16. group c i think is a really interesting group morocco you know you'd expect them to do well and they are doing well just won a 2-0 uh yesterday i believe uh, they are sitting with six points top of the group and then jack and i believe we both predicted that ghana who is not where they were before, but still a very good team to be in second place. But it's not. It's Gabon. Gabon has beaten Ghana in incredible, incredible fashion to get four points, which puts them in a great spot to move on to the round of 16. Ghana still has a lot of work. I believe I really want to say that they're playing Comoros next. They are. And so that means that they have to perform well in order to at least get third place. I feel like if you got about four points in this tournament in the group stage, you should at least most likely qualify to the round of 16. Cause again, the third place team qualifies to the round of 16. If they are among the four best uh, third place finishers among all the other uh, groups. So I, if Ghana gets a win against Comoros, which I really highly doubt that they won't, then they should be good in my opinion. Group D is another interesting one. Uh, Nigeria is actually on top. I, I watched the, the, the first game against Egypt where they pretty much bossed them. Uh, Ayanacho got the only goal and Mohamed Salah was nowhere to be seen really, not to any fault of his own. They just, uh, Nigeria just did a really good job closing him down and limiting the chances that he got. Egypt, of course, got the, the win most recently, but it's still, you know... Nigeria on top with six points, very likely that they'll win this entire group. And Egypt, most likely they'll get second place, which is at this point in the in the tournament, an underachievement for Egypt. Uh, Guinea-Bissau and Sudan are fighting for that third place spot. Both of them have one point, and they are playing Guinea-Bissau, Nigeria, and Egypt will play Sudan. So, you know, a lot to play for there. Uh, but I'm gonna guess that Guinea-Bissau and Sudan are most likely not going to make it to the final round of 16. Group E, the penultimate group, uh, this this is where it gets a, a, even crazier. The Ivory Coast are on top, and they're a good team. You know, you expect them to make the round of 16. They got four points. Not bad, not bad. Equatorial Guinea, I wasn't really expecting them to be in second place at this point, uh, but they are in second with three points after two games played. Very, very impressive. Uh, Sierra Leone, has now had two draws in a row. They are currently sitting in third place. And you might be wondering to yourself, AJ, I thought Algeria was in this group. You'd be correct. They are in this group. And they're last. That's right. The team that I said would win this entire tournament because they have all the pieces are in last place in their group. 
and they haven't won a single game. They haven't scored a single goal. And this is a team with Mahrez, with Ben Rama, with a lot of really talented players from front to back, and they still have not performed at the level that they should, partially because, you know, the manager might not be picking the best players, but I, I really can't explain how they haven't even scored a single goal. I think that they will be able to score next, though, but it's going to be tough because they are playing Ivory Coast, the first place team. And so this is going to be a must-watch game. If there's one game to watch, I think it has to be this one. Because if Algeria somehow don't make it to the round of 16, because they're, they're on one point. Like I said before, you have to make around at least four points in order to qualify for the next round. So if they don't win this game against the Ivory Coast, if they only tie, they're definitely not making out of the group. If they lose, they're again, they're not making out of the group. They have to win to even have a chance. A lot of pressure on them. The last group, uh, Gambia. In first place with four points. It's their first ever uh, AFCON, African Cup of Nations. They're in first place. They're in a great position to move forward. Because they already have four points, they're in a great position. Mali's in second. Tunisia, who you expect to win this group, is in third place. Uh, Mauritania in last. And Tunisia and the Gambia play in that last uh, group stage match in Group F. So that's going to be a very, very exciting one. Definitely watch that. Just wanted to give a little bit of a quick AFCON recap before we move on to the rest of the episode. Because, you know, AFCON's interesting. Definitely go watch it if you have BN or Fubo TV. Really, really fun to watch. All right, so let's move on to some more reviews of some games that have happened. Uh, specifically, some Super Cup games, because it's Super Cup season. Yay, yay. I, I still think it's kind of stupid to have Super Cups in the middle of the season. Kind of, Kind of dumb, but, you know, January is when you have a lot of cup competitions, whether it be the EFL Cup, FA Cup, Copa del Rey, or the Super Cups. So let's start off with the Italian one, because that was just one game. Uh, the, what's it even called? The Super Copa d'Italia, right? Uh, Inter Milan hosted Juventus at uh, their stadium uh, for this uh, one-off match. And it is a pretty pretty good match overall. Weston McKenney, the American, opens up scoring with a great header to you know, put, that, put them up ahead and what's great about McKenney scoring is that this is not the last time he scored since uh, this game uh, had concluded. He also scored against Udinese. And for my money right now, he's the most important informed player going to the U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifiers. Like he is probably, for my money, Juve's best, best midfielder right now playing. Like, like he's getting minutes. He's performing very well. And he's just a workhorse, and I really like that about him. I think he's really lifted Juve up when he plays, and I think that that's exactly the type of momentum that you need to perform well in this January window. So really happy he scored. He wasn't the, the only one who scored in this game because Latoro Martinez of Inter Milan scores a penalty, just a perfectly placed shot into the top right corner. And really throughout this entire first half, Inter really dominated Juve despite the McKenny goalkeeping is level. Like, I, I really expected uh, Martinez or some other Inter player to score another just because they had that, that, that push in them to score another, but it didn't happen. In fact, this game went to 90 minutes, and it was really likely to go to penalties. Juve's defense was being very powerful and keeping this very powerful Inter team out for 75 minutes until a ball goes towards left-back Alexandro of Juventus. Instead of deflecting it back to Perrin, their goalkeeper, or clearing it forward, he chests the ball. 
straight to Darmian, who kicks it to Inter Milan's Alexis Sanchez, who scores with the very last touch of the game. Sancho is terrible, has been for a while. Uh, Alexis Sanchez, to his credit, y- yes, he kind of got gifted that goal, but he's been working this entire game. And really, this is really emblematic of the amount of effort that he put uh, through the uh, 50 or so minutes that he was on as a sub. Like, this is really, really emblematic of that effort. McKenney and all, all the Juve's players, like, they played pretty well. And yet they got let down by Alexandro. And if that's not kind of representative of how Juve season has gone, whether it be the defense or the midfield letting them down, I, I don't know what is. But congrats to Inter Milan for winning the Supercoppa Italia. Really big achievement. Uh, I'm really glad that uh, San Siro was able to see that pretty, pretty crazy ending. So let's talk about the Supercopa de Espana, the Spanish Super Cup. Starting off with the first semifinal, because yes, this is a Super Cup with semifinals. You have uh, the winners of both the Copa del Rey and La Liga and the runners up for those two respective tournaments or competitions. I don't know if I like that. In fact, I don't like that, if I can say that. I, I, I don't like that. I think that's weird, unless you have multiple competitions. Like if you did it in England where it's the FA Cup winner, right? And the Premier League winner, the EFL Cup winner, and I don't know, the, the, the last Community Shield winner. That would make sense. Here, like, I don't know. The runners-up are always going to be there. I, I, don't, I don't like that. But it did lead to an El Clasico in the semifinal, and that was a great El Clasico. A really good encapsulation of both of these teams. For Barcelona, they had to fight for every goal. Like with the Luke de Jong goal, uh, and you should definitely see the highlights or the goals for this game because it was crazy. Uh, but that Luke de Jong goal that drew it forward, uh, equal, Luke de Jong deflects a ball hit by Real's Militao and it finds the back of the net. It, like, it, it, they just had to work, you know, put in the effort in order to get any goal. And even though it was lucky, you know, it did take a lot of you know, pressuring Real Madrid in order to get that goal. So, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm reaching here, but I think it's emblematic of how their season has gone, how much they've had to really fight for every single point given their uh, lack of talent, so to speak. Uh, but a headed goal from Ansu Fadi also shows that one of Barcelona's strengths is their youth. Even at a young age, Ansu Fadi has the ability to perform a great goal from him. And who knows where he can potentially take Barcelona. He is their new number 10, and he has all the makings to be a bona fide soccer superstar in the making. And when you add in the likes of uh, Gavi, Torres, Araujo, Pedri, uh, Jukla, and Nico Gonzalez, who all played today, or a couple days ago during El Clasico, and are all U22. Like, this is a Barcelona team in transition, but there is a nice, bright generation coming up for them. Real Madrid, on the other side of this game, showed their dominant prowess. Like, Vinicius Jr., Real Madrid's talisman young left winger, scored first. And as he you know, does all season, he, he loves scoring goals, 12 goals in the league at such a young age. And after the Luke de Jong goal scores the equalizer, Benzema scores to put Los Blancos ahead once more. And really, who couldn't have seen that coming? Because Real Madrid are A, just really dominant, and B, Benzema himself is probably one of the most dominant players in the league of this season, scoring 17 goals and assisting seven more. This is, you know, such a good team, really works well 
as a unit. And that's, that's, that's really shown in the, the, the winning goal in extra time. A wonderful team goal that saw Casemiro passing out to Rodrigo, who cuts it back to Valverde, who wins it for Real. Were they the deserving team? Yes. Did Barcelona put a very, very good fight up? Uh, uh, debatable, but I, I, I would say yes. I would say yes. And I think that even though Barcelona might not be where they were before and might not for a while, especially if management still kind of sucks, I'm excited to see what these young players at the very least do for this team. And Real Madrid goes on to this final. On the other side of the bracket, Atletico Madrid and Athletic Club go on to uh, this onto the semifinal. Uh, Atletico Madrid score first, even though it wasn't really them. It's uh, Athletic Club's goalkeeper Unai Simon scoring an own goal. But then, right, right at like kind of the, the the end of the game, the 77th and 81st minute, Athletic Bilbao scores in a flurry to take it from one to zero to two to one in their favor. Uh, Yere Alvarez and Nico Williams, great player Nico Williams, uh, scores to win it for uh, Bilbao. And, and they go on to the final, which was, uh, I, I want to say decent, but it, it, was, uh, it, it was Real Madrid all over, really, like a really good game from Real Madrid. Modric scores, Luka Modric scores in the 38th minute. Just a, a, a really good first-time curling ball into the top corner. Puts them up, going into halftime, and then Kareem Benzema uh, scores a penalty. It was a penalty, and they're up 2-0. to zero. Uh, And, you know, Bilbao, they had their chances. They just, it, it just wasn't really there in the cards for them. However, they, they did have, have, have a chance. I mean, they had, they had multiple chances. They, they actually created more big chances than Real Madrid. Took as many uh, shots as them, more shots even, but it just wasn't getting converted. I think Courtois had an amazing game, especially because he saved a penalty kick. That's right, in the very last minute. Well, not last minute, around, was that, the, the, the 89th minute or so, 87th minute. Uh, Militao, who's had a terrible tournament, I should say, you know, uh, <laughs> leads to the Luke de Jong goal and then now handles the ball in the box leads to a, a straight red card uh but you know who else but Raul Garcia steps up for Athletic Bilbao to take the penalty and guess what guess what it 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 it, it gets saved it, it it's a, there's no power between that kick and it just leads to nothing and so what could have been a chance for him to, you know, take Athletic Club to only one goal behind and maybe put them back in this game, dissipates. Completely gone. Real Madrid win 2-0. to zero. So congrats to Real Madrid. All right, so those are the Super Cup games. I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching them, despite uh, this, this Spanish Super Cup taking place in Saudi Arabia. Don't really agree with that. But, you know, overall, on the field, pretty good games. All right. Next, I thought we'd think about or talk about a team that we rarely do, and that's Everton. It's not that we have anything against Everton. Like Jack and I, we like to focus on a wide variety of teams and leagues, right? So we don't just want to talk about Barcelona or even the Premier League teams. You know, we, we focus a lot on the Premier League. We also like to talk about other leagues like Serie A. We've been talking about Serie A a lot recently, and I really enjoy that. And so we don't 
pick favorites or least favorites. So when there's a team like Everton, which, you know, you'd expect us to talk about, because, we, you know, we talk about Newcastle and Aston Villa more than Everton. You might wonder yourself, well, why is that? And it's just that Everton are so just bad, but not in a fun way that there's really like no reason for us to talk about them. Like we talk, I'm pretty sure we talk about Norwich City probably more than we've talked about Everton. But now here, here I am talking about Everton because Rafa Benitez has been fired or resigns. I don't even know what terminology you want, but he, he's out of Everton after just six months in charge. Now, I'm not going to say I told you so, but to all of our listeners and Jack, I, I, I told you all so. Because I remember, I, I went back actually into my show notes. I remember saying back in episode 27 of this podcast, so literally like half, half of our podcast episodes ago, that this was a confusing appointment, that his leash is super short. He, yeah, he, he's managed huge clubs like Real Madrid, uh, but that also includes Everton's eternal rivals, Liverpool. And I said back then that, that, that if he'd get sacked, it would be at like the first smell of losing, at the first taste of struggle. Like his appointment was already met with skepticism from Everton fans because he used to manage Liverpool. So, you know, there's no way that the fans nor the club atmosphere would survive if they began to lose. And lose, he did. It, it, it's been bad. Like, it's been really bad. Everton won just one game since the end of September. And after their really embarrassing loss to league basement dwellers Norwich City this Saturday, they find themselves closer to last place in terms of points than ninth place. Just, just really, really bad. And when you look at what he's done in this entire uh, time as manager, he sold James Rodriguez and Digne. I believe. I, I hope I'm pronouncing Digne right. Like I, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think I, I don't watch a lot of Everton, uh, at least recently. So I can't really say that I've heard his name being said too much. Plus, English isn't my first language, so you know, leave me alone. But but those are two players that can still contribute. Keeping Digne might have been more realistic than James because of James's relationship with Ancelotti, who brought him in. But, you know, when you look at what else uh, Rafa has done, he spent about $40 million recently to bring players in, all while leading the club to a relegation fight where they're now 16th place with no real turnaround plan in sight. The only real pro that I can see from this entire campaign of the last six months that he's gone on is he brought in Damari Gray, who's been very, very good this season. So, you know, props to him, I guess. But if I put this, if I put this squarely on Benitez, I don't think that would be fair. Because yes, he probably should have done better given the amount of players that he has. Like still, like Richarlison, uh, Calvert Lewin, you know, those are good players. Gray's really good. Pickford is an all right goalkeeper. Like the, at the very least, they should still be doing better, right? But I'm not going to say that this is squarely, squarely on him. I'm going to put. At least most of the blame still on the Everton board and their owner, Farhad Moshiri. And I know if any Everton fans are out there, I'm pretty sure they would also agree. Because he bought Everton in 2016, and he's 
you know, done really nothing of note, but waste money, manager, and players with this team. Listen, I, I, I get it. Everton aren't the biggest club, but they're still one of six Premier League teams to have played every single season in the Prem, yet they've only made the top four once. Like, that, that's an embarrassing stat to be just good enough to never have been relegated, but just so painfully mid-table to just bad that you can't mount any real title challenge or anything of note. And especially recently, they haven't really showed any signs of improvement. Challenging for those European spots around like, you know, spots five to eight to nine even should be the expectation for a club with such history, uh, rich culture, and honestly, you know, historical backing as Everton. And when David Moyes was there, that happened at least pretty regularly. But this club has been run so poorly that that just doesn't really happen anymore, especially as of late. Moshiri, when I look at what he's done with this club, is obsessed with buying top bill managers like Ancelotti and now, you know, most recently with Benitez. Yet, I, I just don't think he has any idea what he wants out of Everton. Like, just think about this logically. You can't pay Benitez big money to lead Everton, not back him in the transfer market, allow him to mess with the roster, and sack him at the first taste of, uh, of, of losses, of struggle. Like, you shouldn't have, if, if you're going to sack him right away and not back him no matter what, then you shouldn't have made that appointment in the first place. Since Moshiri took over Everton, they've gone through now five managers. They're looking for their sixth now, right? Like that, 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 that's terrible numbers. That's Watford numbers. That might be worse than Watford numbers. I don't know. Like this is a team that when he took over, had money, had quality players to work with or sell. If Moshiri would just get a manager with a vision and actually stick to said manager, he'd find success right now. But he hasn't, and he, he, he won't because he's treating this club like it's a football manager safe, just trying whatever he wants, getting in the manager's business, like really micromanaging these managers. And I'm not saying that that uh, Ancelotti, even though he left on his own accord, but let's look at Rafa Benitez. I'm not saying that he could have saved it all by himself, but if he really wants to lead this club to success, get a manager who is actually a good fit for a club and not just a big name that you think will be attractive to players or whatever, and really build a team that can succeed because you have the money and you have the ability to attract, you know, a good amount of coaches to, uh, you know, this really historical team. Like, right, like David Moyes was able to do that with West Ham, not to, you know, toot my own horn with, with my own club. But when you back a manager, like really back a manager, even if it's not the most sexiest of signings, they can get things done. And that's just not what Moshiri's MO has been. Like, it doesn't matter who their next manager is. Until Moshiri actually gets a head on his shoulders, Everton will be always like the, uh, the, the Indiana Pacers of the Premier League. Maybe good at some points, you know, are pretty decent. But given the tools that they were given, the players and the managers that they had, huge underperformers in every sense. I'm sorry if uh, I have any Indiana listeners listening to me right now, but uh, Everton and Indiana Pacers might as well might as well be the same or or <laughs> the, the Vikings. There you go. Uh, I'll, I'll insult my own team. The Vikings of the Premier League. Now I'm sad. Now I'm sad. Let's get even sadder. How about that? 
uh, by talking about Arsenal and COVID postponements. But actually, before we get to that, uh, considering that I'm about 30 minutes into this recording, I thought I would, you know, take a short break to talk about some things. Uh, usually, this is the point where Jack and I have a, a trivia game where either him or, or me asks the other some trivia questions related to soccer and the listeners can play along. But since he's not here, I'm not going to ask my imaginary friends to play this uh, trivia game with me. I thought I'd just kind of talk about the things that Jack and I do outside of this podcast, you know, kind of, you know, do a little ad thing. Like, like this episode is sponsored by Jack's TikTok. So, so Jack has just recently been posting a bit more on his TikTok, uh, particularly some Marvel content. He's been on a Jordan Wiegand's, a friend of the podcast, a host of Stateside Soccer Show. He's been on his Marvel a podcast to oh god I'm, I'm gonna f- i'm gonna fumble name to to the infinity pod whatever it, it, it's linked down below i promise it's linked down below i'm sorry jordan uh i i do listen just so you know and i, I listen to uh some of the spider-man ones pretty good pretty good show uh but jack in his own right has been really into marvel uh reading some comics and as of recently he's been posting videos on tiktok uh, about Marvel, he's actually just, like been writing scripts for them. He's putting in a, a lot of work, and I I really enjoy them. So I have linked down below Jack's TikTok. Definitely go watch those, especially if you are into Marvel and listen to Jordan's uh, podcast, where Jack is a pretty frequent contributor too. So yeah, just listen to those. Uh, this episode is also sponsored by my YouTube channel. So outside of this podcast, I you know I love soccer, but I also I'm a civil engineering student here at the University of Minnesota, and I, I care a lot about infrastructure. I care a lot about uh, public transportation. That's what I'm uh, planning to go into once I graduate. And I make video essays. Well, I'm not. I don't say. I, I shouldn't say. Like I, I do. Like I, I've, I started again because I used to do it. I've started making video essays about urbanism, public transportation, stepping away from car-centric infrastructure, going into more sustainable. Uh, transportation, all that kind of stuff. And I recently released an episode uh, called The Car Paradox, Why Car-Centric Infrastructure is Ruining America, where I talk about how, you know, parking lots and highways, the re- the reason why we keep building them is because we're entrenched in car-centric culture. And until we can break free from that, we're still going to keep on creating a bunch of really bad problems. So if you want to watch uh, in my opinion, a really good video essay. I, I guess I, I'm a little bit biased, but if you want to watch that, that link will be down below. We really appreciate our listeners. So if you want to support us in any other way, aside from just listening, listening to some of our other content that we make uh, creatively on the side is also a huge help. So yeah, I just thought I, I'd have a, a short two or three minute break to talk about that. Those All those links will be again down below. All right, let's talk about some Arsenal. Yay, everyone loves Arsenal, except for the fans of the 19 other teams, I suppose. So the North London derby between Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal was postponed because Arsenal didn't have enough senior players to play the game. This is a story that we've seen a lot, a headline we've seen a lot. The Premier League has allowed postponements due to COVID-19, especially with uh, Omicron and the outbreaks that are caused by that. A lot of teams have had to postpone games simply because COVID-19 has just ravaged their backroom staff, their players, even their youth teams. Uh, However, in this particular case, Arsenal only had a few uh, COVID-19 cases, positive COVID-19 cases. 
they only had 12 healthy players, not due to them all being out due to contact tracing or COVID-19, but also uh, prominently because of injuries and because of international duty uh, due to to AFCON, players gone uh, because of the African Cup of Nations. And the reason why they were able to get it postponed and why any game gets postponed at all is because the league looks at everything on an individual basis, balancing whether or not an outbreak on a team really hinders their ability to field a team. Like a team that has an outbreak of six to seven players, because they look on an individual basis, that six to seven players being out might not affect if a game goes on. The game still might be played because those six to seven players might be the youth team or it might be you know uh, just a handful of first teamers and so the game could realistically still be played without too much of an impact due to covid but at the same time an outbreak of three players might see a game delayed if those three players are all of the first team goalkeepers and so they'd have to start a 16 17 year old goalkeeper out of nowhere because of a, a a minor outbreak and it's important to keep outbreaks from spreading. Like Jack and I have sp- spoken ad nauseum about keeping players healthy from COVID, making sure that we we take these good precautions to make sure that the players and the especially the backroom staff that might be older don't get coronavirus. Like that that, that that's important to us, right? But if we're just using it for any reason, such as injury or international duty, as Arsenal have been using, the whole point of this gets lost. Because teams are deep, they can play youth players, they can play their second stringers. The reason why we postpone games due to COVID, despite having you know a large amount of youth players, you know it makes sense, right? Because you don't want to lower the quality of play due to an unforeseen pandemic. Like you can't prevent that. You know, there's a, there's a there's a lot of gray area, but definitely because you know this is a pandemic, hard to really foresee and like plan for this an outbreak happening. It, it's not fair to like really lower the quality of a game and force like these really youngsters to play just because of, again, a pandemic. However, however, even in non-pandemic years, teams deal with injuries. Teams deal with players being out on international duty. So why now should they be able to have a competitive advantage, they being teams, and post- postpone games until their best players come back? Like, dealing with injuries is a fact of soccer. Like, you shouldn't get to postpone games because even in non-pandemic years, this is just something that you have to deal with. You have to call in your youngsters. You have to, you have to upgrade your physios and your team doctors and, and, and make sure that, that they're actually taking care of the players and keeping them from getting injured. Like, this is just something that you have to deal with. We're dealing with COVID-19 now, but we've dealt with injuries forever. And so this, in turn, you know, instead of trying to water, not water down competitions by uh, postponing games due to COVID, now we're watering down competition because it's almost a crapshoot whether or not games get played. And if the bar for postponement is so low, then yeah, teams are going to use that to get out of having to play their worst players, their younger players, which really puts them at a competitive advantage, puts other teams that don't have uh, that luxury of being able to call off games at a disadvantage, and that itself waters the competition, which is exactly what we didn't want to happen. And 
probably the worst part about this isn't even like the competitive advantage or disadvantage, but it leads to huge fixture congestion, which hurts players' health. Like it's a logistical nightmare already to try to work with authorities to find a date and schedule it. But when you keep in mind that all English league games need to finish by June 1st in order to re for results to stand, this is going to lead to a huge backlog of games being needed to play one right after the other. Like, I would not be surprised if some teams will have to play maybe Tuesday, Thursday, and then Sunday in one week just because there's so many games that need to be played. Like Tottenham, Tottenham are games in hand FC right now. They are four games behind. They have four postponements now with the, the, the newest North London Derby getting postponed. Like, maybe them not being in the European... European Conference League is actually a good thing because they their schedule's about to get so screwed up. They'll have to play game after game after game, right one right after another. And we've seen what that happens. What happens when you do this? Players get injured more. They their stamina dwindles and their output just sucks. And the quality of play just sucks. And again, like I've been saying, yes, it is absolutely important to keep people safe from COVID. But it's so abundantly clear that that's not the reason why teams are using this. They're not using it to keep outbreaks from happening. They're using it for a competitive advantage. Arsenal are only partially at fault. A lot of people are saying that not to blame them because any team would do the same thing. And yeah, that's true. But I also think that any team that does this is acting a little bit immorally. And this league has absolutely dropped the ball. The league made this rule so open-ended that it allows teams like arsenal to abuse it to the nth degree you know get get a competitive advantage out of it by saying that they don't have a full team due to injuries like that that is something that the league did this is a lot of this is the league's fault because they made such an open-ended rule so i guess i'm not gonna put all the blame on arsenal because this it, it, it's just a badly worded rule that has so much room uh, for for abuse and th this this is going to hurt all of these teams when you have the Premier League and all the postponements on top of Europe the Champions League the FA Cup the EFL Cup final for uh, Chelsea the, the the Club World Cup when are when are players expected to rest you know oh, how are we going to deal with this how are we going to deal with the competitive uh, mismatches between the people who have games in hand and the teams that don't there's there's just so much wrong about this that could be solved by the Premier League making it explicitly for COVID-19 and being a lot more transparent about how they postpone games because yes it's good to look at things individually but if you have it too open-ended you get situations like this and when you look at the Bundesliga, who I think are dealing with this well, I think a lot of leagues are actually dealing with this better than the Premier League. Bayern were able to play a match with youth players on their bench. A lot, a lot of uh, youth players. I've, in fact, I don't think there was a single Bundesliga appearance on their bench in one of their recent games. And yet, you know, they won, which is expected because they're they're Bayern Munich. But because they were forced to play, you know, uh, uh, by guideline, they were supposed to play by the Bundesliga and they didn't postpone the game, I think they're going to do better in the Champions League than a lot of these English clubs 
that have had to postpone games and then come March and February when we're in the the the, the, the heat of the Champions League every other week, then it's going to lead to so much fixer congestion and really water down what these teams can do in Europe. And I I I just think that this league has really screwed up. Arsenal are partially at fault. This league, Premier League, very, very much at fault. And it just needs a change for players' health, for competitive integrity of this league, and just for fans who selfishly want to see these games played out if it is uh, ethical and a healthy choice to do so. I'll leave it at that. I've spoken enough about that. Let's go on to some MLS news. Yay, we love MLS, Major League Soccer, best league in the world. Want some proof of that? Well, I got some proof. This is a bit of a tangent, but Nani is moving from Orlando City to Venezia in Syria. Who's the retirement league now? Or how about the fact that Jack Harrison, you know, I don't know, uh, wasn't able to score a hat-trick in the NCAA in college soccer, but now scores a hat-trick against West Ham? Curious, maybe American soccer is actually superior than literally every other league. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the first MLS transfer news, Soteldo moving away from Toronto FC after just one season. Designated player Soteldo has left Toronto FC. This is a 24-year-old Venezuelan winger who cost the club $6.5 million last season, but never really settled into the club. He scored just three goals, and he didn't really gel with the team. I don't think he liked Toronto too much. Didn't really like the coach, Chris Armas, at the time either. Just uh, uh, not, not a lot of great things happened uh, at the beginning of the season or I guess throughout the entire season. So he's going to Tigres in Liga MX, which I think is a better fit. You know, it's a Spanish-speaking country that may play better to his style. And in return, Toronto doesn't get money. You know, that's not a usual transfer. They will get Mexican center back Carlos Salcedo. No money involved. It's just a straight swap, which has its pros and cons. Like, you know, like, listen, like, potentially TFC... Uh, gets a really good player that you bought for, you know, nothing. You you know, you just swapped, and they really need to upgrade their defense. Uh, the defense, as Jack and I talked about when we talked about the Insigne transfer, was their most glaring need. And now they get a, a veteran international center back. Didn't play well this past summer, but played re- recently really well for Tigres. That's really good. It does suck to lose uh, a Soteldo, who is traditionally a very good player but given how much he just didn't vibe with toronto there wasn't really a choice uh the one wrinkle with this though is in order to bring in signe because it looks like salcedo might be a designated player they'll still have three designated players on the books which means they have to get rid of one and they're not going to get rid of pozuelo because he's good they're not going to get rid of salcedo because they just brought him in that leads the third designated player josie alcador is the one on the chopping block let's see if they buy his contract out or if they can, you know, strike up a deal. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll take Josie Altidore on, on Minnesota. Not going to lie. I'd like that. You know, in order to make room for Insigne, he's got to go. And Minnesota needs some more competent strikers because we brought in Abu Donladi, which I'm not a really f- big fan of. Uh, Luis Amaria looks like it's not happening. So we have uh, Adrian Unu, who's a good player, but Abu Donladi is his backup. 
McMaster's he saw on the team. I don't know. I I, I don't know. Like I'll I'll take Josie Altador. That's that, that that's for sure at least. That's for sure. Next up we have Rusnak Rusnak to Seattle Sounders. Uh, I'll say Rusnak. Rusnak watches over. No, that doesn't sound good. I'll say Rusnak. Sure. <laughs> but he was linked with the Sounders, LAFC, DC United, and some Saudi teams, I think. So he was a, a free agent. So he had a, the agency, so to speak, to go wherever he wanted. And he, he was a hot commodity because he, he, he's been really, really good. He was instrumental in RSL's success. He, uh, the left winger, scored 11 goals and 7 assists last season. On a pretty mediocre team. So a lot of good teams wanted him because he's a plug-and-play player, I think. I think that wherever he goes, especially if it's a good team, he'll find success. And so he signed as a last uh, last week or so as a free agent with the Sounders. As a DP, which is interesting, but I think it's worth it because he's such, such a good player. And <laughs> he'll make up a front four of, get this, Rui Diaz, Morris Lodero, and him, Rusnak. Like, come on. That is literally the best front four in MLS this season. I, I really cannot think of a better one, a more uh, striking, scary front four that will have a, a combined like goals and assists number that will cause every other team to pale in comparison. And to the fact that uh, I believe Seattle is wrapping up uh, new contract deals for Rui Diaz and Joao Paulo, a lot of really, really high caliber players. Add in Christian Roldan and Alex Roldan, who I think they're getting back as well, Nuhu and Stefan Fry, who are also very good. Ariel, I got like all these really good players for Seattle. And and Rusnak's joining them. Like, this is every Western team should be scared frightened bewildered that they let this happen i if i was pretty much any other western conference team eastern conference team even i would have thrown like all the money in the world for him even if it meant that he's going to be a designated player because he's that good he is that good uh and a real fun fact about this is that the sounders have now taken rsl's head coach general manager and now captain so that's that's tough but you know, him on the left wing is going to be a great sight to see in Seattle. Next up is Acosta to LAFC. The U.S. men's national team and Colorado Rapids number six, Kellen Acosta, has been traded from the Rapids to LAFC for $1.1 million in general allocation money, an additional 400000 in incentives, and a sell-on fee as well. Europe may have been an option instead of an interleague trade, but there's been some contention there. Overall, Acosta did not want to be traded, and he himself said that there was actually an option to move abroad that Colorado shot down. He tweeted, actually, saying that this narrative is sad. Colorado pushed me out. They didn't offer for me on the table from abroad and ongoing interests and opted to trade me. Colorado, when asked, said that there wasn't such a deal in place, nothing really getting talked about. However, I, 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 I don't know who to believe. All I know is that Kroenke, the owner of uh, Colorado Rapids, the Denver, no, the LA Rams and Arsenal is just a bad owner. He, he's just a bad owner. And I wouldn't be surprised if Kellen Acosta is telling the truth. Kind of sucks. Maybe he can... Uh, strike a deal with LAFC where he plays for a little bit and then moves on in the summer. I don't know. 
as for on the field, I think he'll still do really good for LAFC. They have a pretty good midfield, and I think he's he'll plug right in at that number six spot, and I, I think they'll do well. I, I think they might be able to make playoffs if they can get a little bit deeper. Colorado, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, like, are they a good team? Yes, they, they've done very well in uh, getting good domestic players, but their depth, I, I don't think, is is that great, nor do I think that the pieces that they built around are real game changers. If they get a good number nine, I, I, my tune might change. But with getting rid of Acosta and Cole Bassett, there's a fine line between playing money ball and being cheap. And with Kroenke as your owner, that line might just very well be blurred. And so I, I really hope the best for Colorado. I think their fans are great. I think that their way of leading a team and building a team is really good but it does require at some point investing money into some game changers and having smart choices around them i don't know uh next we have a double transfer to talk about not really double like they're not connected but they're similar because justin shea of fc dallas center back slash right back is moving to tsu hoffenheim in the bundesliga and cole bassett uh, uh attack midfielder for colorado is moving to Feyenoord in the Eredivisie in the Netherlands, both on an 18-month loan. Both are very good young players, and I think the 18-month loan is the new meta. It's great for everybody. Like, So this basically means that from now until the end of the next European season, so uh, uh, summer of 2023, they will be there uh, in their new club if all things go well. Because the receiving team gets uh, an extended loan, pretty much an extended trial to see if they want to buy this player at the end of the 18 months. And I, I really think like uh, the six month loan that some players were doing, like like DK to Barnsley last season, I, I don't really think that's super effective because you, you want the, the players want to get settled. And with an 18 month loan, they actually get settled in a new place. They actually like get to know the culture and like the city and uh, feel like they're actually a part of the team. And when it's a six-month loan, you don't really get that. It's like you're going on an extended vacation. You're only there for a little bit at most, and you don't really get to settle in, and it's a completely new side of the hemisphere. And the receiving team, they 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 want to get you on loan because they want to play you right away. And when you're still getting settled, suddenly you're two months in, you're still finding your feet, and that's when you start performing. Well, that's not going to be really effective for them because – they got you for six months and you only start performing two months in like that. That's not, that's not really good for them. And MLS teams, you know, they, they, they want to either get an improved player at the end of the loan, which is going to happen with the 18 month loan, or they want to sell you off for money. But if you're not getting the playing time at that team, they're not going to want to uh, sign you and you as the owner of your club won't get any money from that because the player that you sent out on loan uh, isn't getting any minutes, you won't get any money, and you won't get an improved player because he's not getting any playing time. So the 18-month loan is the new meta in MLS, and I think it's a great move overall. Uh, lastly, let's, let's finally talk about the MLS Next Pro, the last thing we'll talk about before we wrap this entire episode up. Uh, there's some more details about the MLS Next Pro League, which for those of you who are living under rockers don't care about MLS. This league is the developmental league, the reserve league of MLS. 
a bunch of MLS teams are creating or moving their B teams, their two teams, to this league, which is in the third third division, third tier of U.S. soccer. Uh, it's going to be made up of a lot of reserve teams as well as one independent team as of right now, maybe some more independent teams in the future. That uh, team being Rochester FC, something, something, something. It's a Rochester team. There you go. There are some really interesting rules and regulations in this league. So uh, let's go over them a little bit and talk about some of the implications for this league and for U.S. soccer development. Number one, there will be no salary cap. And you might be thinking, well, MLS has a salary cap. Why doesn't this one have one? Well, this league is supposed to compete with USL in terms of developing players and incentivizing those players to come here, as well as you know, it's supposed it's supposed to be at least according to them uh, a league where independent teams can join. And I wouldn't be surprised if this incentivizes independent teams to join because no team independent team wants to be limited the same way as B teams do. And when you look at the second teams of a lot of these. Uh, larger MLS teams, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of them are not going to be spending too much money and that any independent team that joins will eclipse them in terms of salary, wage bill costs. So, you know, you kind of need that in order to get those uh, independent teams. And yeah, I'm not too bummed about it. Uh, I am a little bit bummed about the fact that there won't be a minimum or maximum salary in this third tier reserve league players can be paid whatever the amounts that the club and them choose and to me that's a little suspicious can i be honest that's a little a little little suspicious i get that this isn't the highest level of soccer in the world much less america but when this league is bankrolled by literal billionaires that own these mls teams this sure seems like a tactic to not play some players livable and sustainable wages and i'd really hate to see that happen because Obviously, workers' rights, heck yeah, you know what I mean? And I, I've seen the argument, and you can say that it is to keep players NCAA eligible, because if you get paid professionally, you're not allowed to play uh, college soccer anymore. And I get that. I, I, I truly get that. Like that, That's important for some people. But I'm pretty sure that the USL has amateur contracts specifically for players looking to play in college yet they still have a minimum salary. So I I, I don't know, like this, it, it just doesn't look good. No maximum salary makes a lot of sense if, you know, it, for independent teams, especially who want to play, pay players a lot, or if you're an MLS team who buys a U22 initiative player who costs a lot of money and you want to play him in this league just to get some minutes, it, it, it you know before you you integrate him with the rest of the team it, 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 it'll be arbitrary to really set a a high bound for salaries considering that who knows the level of player you'll be able to bring in a, a young player to bring into this league so i it makes sense really to not have a, a maximum salary minimum salary mm, that's us that's us another interesting thing about this league is that players sign directly with their teams not the league like current mls players do so this is kind of similar to usl and leagues not called mls in mls you sign a contract to the league and you know you play for a franchise a team that's not the case in this league where you will sign 
with the team, not the league. And that makes sense when you have independent teams because what independent team, again, wants to sign a player but not actually own the player? It's owned by the league, a league that they're not technically like under. You know what I mean? Like, like Rochester isn't owned by the league. It's not like a franchise. It's an actual team. So in order to keep all of things separate, it makes sense that you need to uh, sign directly to these MLS Next Pro teams. So basically, instead of signing to MLS Next Pro, if a player wants to sign for a team, they'll actually sign for like Atlanta United 2, like directly, directly, which is, you know, I, I think interesting. Good move, I think. Another thing is very similar to Europe or USL is the fact that there's no allocation money and no trades. If a player wants to move from one team to the other within MLS Next Pro, an actual deal will have to be made. Like, they, they, like a money transaction will have to be made. Like, they'll have to trade, like, $12,000, $50,000, no allocation money, just, like, straight up cash, which is the same as uh, every other league in the world, which is cool to see that MLS might be testing the waters and that, or no, I would say testing the waters. They're just doing it because it's a lot simpler. But what I think is a byproduct of this, or maybe it's the main reason why they're doing it, is that they might not lose as many players to USL. Because right now, a lot of players are, instead of signing for MLS teams, they're signing for USL teams because of the fact that USL, like MLS Next Pro now, uh, they don't sign directly to a team. If they get traded, it has to be uh, by uh, by you know actual transfer. Like they have to trade money. The player has to sign a new contract. Like there's no contract to the league, which allows players easier an easier time moving from USL to Europe than MLS to Europe, just based on like how the contracts work. Well, now if MLS Next Pro is emulating that, then theoretically. A player can sell, can you know, sign sign for an MLS Next Club, and still have an easy way to get to Europe. And if they don't move to Europe, then they can get called up by the MLS team. So it really incentivizes players to stay within the system. And because they stay in the system of MLS, it allows MLS to still be able to sell them for the transfer fee. They don't lose them for a free or uh, to a smaller transfer fee to a USL team. Like they get the full fee. Like imagine if uh, the greatest example of this is Jonathan Gomez, who went to uh, Louisville city and is moving to Real Sociedad. If, uh, if his MLS team or, or whoever had him at the time was able to transfer him to an MLS next pro club, have him boss the, the third tier a little bit and then move on to Real Sociedad that MLS team will be able to keep that profit, which is something that they obviously want to have. So really interesting there. Uh, for player limits, teams will need to have at least 12 contracted players with the roster limit at 24 total. But that is actually not including amateur academy call-ups, which I think could take the limit up to 35 uh, con- uh, players on your roster. So 11 extra that could be amateur academy call-ups. Uh, yeah, cool. So this is where I'm going to read directly from Jeff Reuter's uh, article about this league and the details, because this is a little bit confusing even for me. So MLS teams will have the rights over MLS Next Pro players, provided that they fit into three categories. The first is any player in their academy or under a homegrown contract. And this is widely expected to be the predominant type of player for most teams in this league. So 
lot of teams already have academies, so they'll sign homegrown deals and play here. Really good, and this is why I, I like the fact that the, this league exists because it, it, it forces teams to maybe invest more to their academy or at least like build a good pipeline, and having a reserve league is generally good for development, so that's really cool to see. Uh, but it's also good for people who you know get out of college and get drafted in the Super Draft because that's the, the second... A uh, way that an MLS team can have rights over a player in this league is if they uh, get selected in the Super Draft and that as teams hold protection over these collegiate players for three successive transfer windows. The third group uh, is more subjective and fluid as teams will be able to claim discovery priority on a number of players under the age of 24 who are neither homegrowns nor Super Draft selections. Teams have a limit of three such claims to make. However, sources expect this number to increase as MLS Next Pro gives greater relevance to such priorities. Uh, if you know anything about discovery rights with MLS, this is pretty much the same thing. So I, I don't know if I like that. Uh, the article goes on to say, in the event that Team A wants to sign an unprotected player from Team B's MLS Next Pro roster, the two sides will have to come to an agreement to acquire the player's rights. Team A would need to put that player on their discovery list to have exclusive negotiating rights to the player from there, Team A and Team B would negotiate a transfer or loan agreement to settle their business before Team A can negotiate terms with the player for a contract. Uh, it's just needlessly complicated. Just transfer the player. Like I, I don't know what incentive this brings to teams other than keeping them able to uh, hoard players and, and not uh, pay them their, their, their fair salary. I don't know. It, it, it's just dumb. And this is where... I, again, I'll say this before I sign off on this. I have major issues with this league. Number one, because I want these players to be paid a fair wage, and that minimum salary really kind of throws me off. I like most of the other moves that, that, that this league has made. Overall, I think it'll do a really good job incentivizing clubs to actually invest in their academy uh, because they can actually get money from it. I think that's good. I think that's good. However, I also don't like how this league is very exclusive pretty much just for MLS teams. Can't imagine it's going to be very open for USL teams or MPSL teams or whatever. Yes, it's independent, but MLS still runs this league. And so I, I, my dream in terms of a reserve league is to have a reserve league that is more or less a pyramid open for whatever club wants to be in it, whether it's uh, the, the, the U23 team of the NPSL or a B team of the USL or, or MLS. Because, right, like all these different leagues, they have different priorities. MLS has different priorities than uh, USL, NPSL, UPSL, right? But the Reserve League, there's one incentive, which is to develop players, sell them on, or get them to the first team. So why can't we all cooperate under this U.S. soccer pyramid to, to make just one reserve league? Like, we all have the same goal here. I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's cool. It, it, it's not cool, actually. I lied. But these updates, I think, were pretty cool. And I, in general, I like where this league is going. Cautiously optimistic, but there are still some things I fundamentally do not like. All right, I've been talking for way too long, a bit, a bit over an hour now, uh... I, I like doing this this solo podcast. It was fun, but really hoping uh, Jack comes home soon because I miss my co-host. If you'd like to follow both Jack and I on social media on our podcast account, definitely go do that at Final Third Show on Twitter and Instagram. We post a lot there. Definitely check us out. If you want a central hub for the podcast episode, 
definitely go check out our website, finalthirdshow.com. That'll have all the place where you can listen to us on in one neat area. Uh, if you'd you know like to give us a rating, a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, that'd be much, much appreciated. Uh, either, I almost said Twitter, no, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Huge, huge help if you do that. Tell your friend about the show. Tell your dad about the show. I'm sure he'd love to hear about all the stuff we talked about today. All right, we're going to see you guys this Thursday for a mid-season review of the top five European leagues for our Thursday deep dive. And we'll see you guys same time, same place for our news and predictions episode next Monday. See ya. And this is the part where Jack says bye for now, but he's not here right now, so I'll say it. Bye for now. Bye for now.